You're listening to It's Not All Academic, a podcast that takes you into the minds and hearts of innovators and problem solvers who are reshaping our world. I'm your host, Nadine Shadia, and in this series, I'll bring you inspiring stories and thought-provoking conversations with experts from various fields. Grab your headphones and get ready to open your ears to a world beyond academia. Hello and welcome to the podcast series, It's Not All Academic, recorded in the heart of Ghana country, Adelaide, South Australia. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome my next guest, Professor Goran Roos. Professor Roos is one of the founders of modern intellectual capital science and a recognized world expert in innovation management, industrial and innovation policy and strategy. He is an advisor to organizations and governments around the globe and holds visiting professorships in Australia, the UK and Norway. Professor Roos is also an adjunct professor to the Institute for Sustainability, Energy and Resources, ISA, at the University of Adelaide. Joran, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Tell us about where you're originally from and where you call home today. <laughs> I'm originally from Sweden, but I haven't really lived there for many decades. And I live nowadays in the UK, although I did spend seven very nice years in Adelaide. So you first came to South Australia in 2011 as a thinker in residence, and you wouldn't be aware, but you taught me in 2013 or 14 as part of my innovation and entrepreneurship postgraduate studies. Let me see. I have no memory of that. (laughs) I'm sure you wouldn't, but I wouldn't expect you to either. But um, forgetting what the course is, but the subject matter you taught me would have been around intellectual capital. A lot of the listeners of this show would be familiar with intellectual property. Could you tell us a, a bit more about intellectual capital? Yeah, let me take a little bit of a, a detour in that. In, in the domain of strategy, there are a couple of, of um, views of how to start your thinking of strategy. One is um, historically known as the resource-based view. And what that says is that it's all about the resources you have as an organization that enable you to create competitive advantage from within those uh, resources. The intellectual capital view have extended that view of resources. So classically in the strategy field, those resources were very tangible. Uh, And what they've done here is they've broadened the scope. So you talk about five classes of resources based on their economic behavior. So you talk about physical resources, anything you can touch, product machines, and so on. You talk about monetary resources, so the cash in it, cash equivalents in the different forms. You talk about relational resources, so the things you can leverage in terms of your customers, your suppliers, your stakeholders of traditional nature. It talks about organizational resources, in other words, the processes and systems and structures, the resulting activities of human endeavors that you cannot touch. <laughs> so those fall there. And finally, they talk about human resources, really about the competence, the attitudes, the know-how and so on of individuals. So intellectual capital is the ability to look at all these resource categories holistically and understand how they work and how you can deploy them to maximize your value creation as an organization. And it's not to be confused with intangibles. Intangibles is an accounting term. It's about the recognizability of a resource Mm. and has nothing to do with its behavior. Whereas the intellectual capital view is very much about understanding the resources, understanding how they work, understanding what you happen when you put them together and when you transform one into to another. And I don't profess to remember what you taught me <clears throat> nearly 10 years ago, but is there any key changes in the models of intellectual capital from, say, 2013-14? Not really. Um, what's, of course, happened is that there are other resources that has emerged. You know, you can talk about machine learning, for example, given where we're presently located in doing this podcast. Uh, so machine learning is a an organizational resource. It's a piece of software, basically. Yeah. Uh, and that did not exist a long time ago in the way it does today. So you have more resources, but its economic behavior and how it's deployed in principle has not changed in any way or form. Okay. And so what are you doing in South Australia this time around? 
Well, I'm here uh, under my hat of being an adjunct professor at um, Adelaide University. So I'm being deployed <laughs> by the university to talk to different people, have conversations, give a few presentations, and so on. And of course, I have a few other people who catches up with me when I am here. Yeah. Okay. So I think a lot about what you're doing with South Australian government is to do with the Green Economy Catalysts Program. And just to quote some of the information from that program is about bringing global leaders to Adelaide to engage with industry sectors, government and community, to support SA's transition to a circular and green economy and to drive climate action. So as recently as yesterday evening, we listened to a conversation and a presentation that you gave about South Australia's transition to the green economy. Let's start perhaps at the definition level around green transformation. I must admit it's not a, an area of expertise for myself working in health and medical, but what does it encapsulate, the green transformation? What would help people's understanding of that? Well, again, let me, let me back off and say that, you know, with some frequency, maybe every 70 years or something like that, there is a, a major shift in how society goes about creating value. You know, the last time we had a major shift like that was with the introduction of the combustion engine. Uh, so we had cars and then we needed new infrastructure, new raw materials in terms of pipelines, petrol, all these things. So the and new capabilities, it changes the structure of the industry. So people who were very good at making saddles basically had to change what they did, either become a saddle maker for cars or making saddle for people who had horses more as a luxury than as a utility, all going out of business. So um, whenever these things happen, there is a dramatic change of everything, attitudes, behaviors, infrastructure, industrial structure, activities, competence, and so on. So we are presently in one of those changes, and none of them happen overnight. They take decades to realize. Yeah. Um, so the green transformation is actually one where we are moving from our traditional way of creating value to a way of creating value which has reduced environmental impact in the broadest definition of the term. But we will still aim to create economic growth in doing so because very few people would accept to have a rapidly reduced uh, purchasing mm. power and standard of living. So we do have to continue to create economic growth, which means we have to decouple the growth um, discussion in, in real economic terms from the environmental impact discussion, which actually a number of countries in the OC is starting to be able to do. And you can see that from the statistics that the economic growth is now decoupling from what used to be a traditional, very strong linkage to environmental impact through carbon emissions and so forth. Okay. And circular economy, that's more than just capturing and adding value to waste? or is Yeah, it circular economy is a, is a philosophical concept. And as such, it is a very strong and easy concept to convey. What it basically says is that you, you use something here, uh, you convert it into something, you use this something, and then you give it back and it's reconverted back into something rather into itself. Mm. In the sense mm. that the, the concept is, is indicates that you are basically using what you have multiple times and trying not to use anything new. So as a, as a narrative, it's a very good concept. Now, it, it does suffer from a set of, of deficits in its narrative. And, and that is always the case when you start to look closer at things. It's not as easy as it looks. The first thing is that in, in most of the discussions about um, circular economy, it's focused on the material flows, and they tend to forget okay. the associated energy flows. And, and that is a very important discussion because it takes a lot of energy to go through these different steps. It takes a lot of energy to get some mineral out of the ground. It takes a lot of things to convert it into some metal. It takes a lot of energy to make that metal into some form of product. It takes a lot of energy to move that product around. It takes some energy to use it, then to collect it back. And it takes some energy then to melt it down or recycle it to process it. And then, you know, when you get whatever you have in the other end, it's usually not enough to compare it to what you needed to make the product in the first place. You still need to top up with mm. some form of virgin raw material. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the first challenge, that, that it isn't possible to reach a, a practical circular economy to 100%, which does not mean we should not strive for it, just to make that very clear. Yes. Um, but it also is a problem around 
this whole energy domain, and it's mostly electricity when we talk about energy, that the the electricity need that we have as we move into a green transformation is phenomenally much larger than we need today. For most countries in the OECD world, they need to increase their electricity production between a factor of three to 10, and Australia is closer to the upper range mm. than to the lower range. That's based on predicted population growth and needs of Well, it's more, it's more around, uh, you know, look at you going to just a simple thing uh, without any other considerations, electric vehicles. So you need more electricity mm. in order to charge them. You're going to replace uh, production processes with electric processes. You're going to go from blast furnaces to electric smelting. You need huge amounts of electricity. Mm. You're going to produce hydrogen. You use a huge amount of electricity. You're going to go into other types of chemical processes that replaces um, the way we operate today, both in the heating sense and also potentially in the chemical molecule sense, and that requires, again, a lot of electricity. So it's basically around electrification. And to make all these things and to use them, we need metals. So we are moving from a a petroleum-based economy to a metals-based economy and requiring enormous amounts of electricity as a consequence. Yeah. So that's a really good segue, and there's a few points I want to pick up on there. One of my colleagues asked me to to mention and ask you about whether uh, there was value in pursuing the ancillary industries and supply chain as opposed to digging things out and sort of shipping them off. So what happens then in, in these type of supply chains when you are moving from one thing to another towards the circular economy in this green transformation? Well, the first thing is there will always be winners and losers in every change. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but if you stick to the kind of metal side, um, there are going to be numerous winners because of the enormous needs of metals we will have. Um, it's everything from the more traditional part of the, but one of the critical metals will be copper, which of course Australia has a lot of. Uh, and uh, then the next group is what we know as the rare earth metals, which you need in anything from electric motors, primarily the magnets, to uh, you know, every kind of renewable energy generation technology that we have. Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, there is going to be consequences both for the companies that are active in what we produce today, uh, and they will have both opportunities and challenges, but also for their supply chains. And there will be new opportunities emerging in the whole domain of recycling. I mean, take an example of um, things like the batteries from electric vehicles. We are presently not very good at recycling them. We can, uh, using some pretty nasty chemicals, we can manage to extract some of the more classical metals, you know, cobalt and a few things like that. But we still cannot get at some of the other things. Mm. We end up with something known as black mass, which is just containing all these other things and a pretty nasty substance. So that means we have insufficient technologies today to enable us to have an effective recycling process around that product, as an example, and there are many others. And of course, as technologies develop, this will provide huge opportunities for new companies to enter this supply chain in a profitable way. You talked about winners and losers from the transition, and the take-home message I got was that it's going to be very slow. So what areas could entrepreneurs and innovators start in today based on the stage of the green transformation? Is it still in the capture, processing and assembly of metal or mineral resources? Well, that's, that is one side of it. But on the whole, you, you're looking at um, moving into new ways of doing things. And when you start doing that, you have a number of challenges. You have a set of technological challenges that your technologies may not be there in the in the most efficient way. You will have technologies that are immature, and that entails, uh, as a consequence, that there is going to be challenges around cost, challenges around volume, and challenges around markets that are not really in place and therefore work a bit inefficient. So the first challenge generally in the green transformation is that the uh, there will be a cost increase for all the things that are green initially, mm. as compared to the ones that are not green. And you can look at that. You you can look at what the cost of an electric vehicle is. I'm not going to go into any discussions yeah. about that, whether it's actually <laughs> green or not. But yeah. the, the cost of an electric vehicle is substantially higher than the cost of the existing uh, combustion engine-based vehicle. Um, and it has to be subsidized to ensure that people can take it up. There are 
problems around um, chemicals that you can get from biological raw materials to substitute. Actually, it's the same molecule. It just comes from a different route to substitute the petrochemical-based molecules. And you will have a cost premium of 30 40% on average. You're going to green steel uh, using, for example, hydrogen to direct reduced iron and then spread it into green steel. That also comes with a cost premium in the vicinity of 30%. You go down to the food shops and you look at the food products that are produced under the boundary conditions of low environmental impact, so let's call them green, mm-hmm. uh, as compared to the non-green substitutes that exist there. Every, I think the latest number I have is the average cost increase is about 36%. So, you know, across all these things, you see in the beginning of this transformation, costs will be higher for the desired product as compared to the undesired product. And that means that it's going to be very difficult for both companies and individuals to engage in buying these things Mm. because it's costing more. Uh, And then if you're going to make this change happen at a faster pace, thereby enabling the investments that can drive the R&D and drive down the costs, you need to intervene as a government. And you do that with a number of tools that you have. You can put in regulations, you can put in to require things, you can put in subsidies. And you can see, for example, that the two big trading blocks, the United States or North America and Europe have gone down different routes. So the, the Inflation Reduction Act and also the Bipartisan Act in the US that works on subsidizing down the green product to the same cost level or lower than the, let's call it the black product, thereby accelerating the uptake. Yeah. And in addition, having a number of economic spillover effects that are benefit the US economy. Uh, but it's going to be very expensive. That's the drawback. It's going to cost somewhere in the vicinity of 800 to 1,000, you know, billion dollars. Mm, That's mm. a lot of money even for a US economy. Uh, And if you look at the European Union, they're going the other way. They are penalizing up by different types of taxes and fees and charges, the black product to the level of the green product. So in both situations, you have markets where the costs will be the same between black and green. But in the US, the total cost will be lower, the differential borne by the US taxpayer. In the European Union, the total cost will be higher. And that means that there is an inflow of money Mm. to the national coffers, which can then be used to other policy tools to accelerate the transformation, primarily around small and medium-sized enterprises. Okay, that's fascinating. Uh, is Has enough time elapsed to see which one's performing better, which mechanism, whether it's subsidizing to reduce mm. cost or penalizing to, to bring the Well, it depends up. what you define as better, okay? Mm. If, you, if you define better as the speed by which the market is embracing it, then the U.S. has clearly done better in this period since it was introduced. Okay. Uh, if you're looking at the cost to government and to taxpayers, the European Union has clearly done better. So it's all a matter of how you define the term yeah. better. Yeah. Okay. So South Australia or Australia, a much smaller economy, um, more susceptible probably to economic or market failure. What considerations would the government need to put in place for an interventionist green policy? Yes, this is a very good question. So the first challenge is small economies will require much more intervention than large economies. And if you think about it, in a in a country like the US, there will always be part of the economy that does well, and there will be part that does not do so well. And that means that it automatically adjusts because there is an insight around what works in the world, and there's always insight what doesn't work. So the, you free up the resources from things that doesn't work, and it migrates to the things that work. So that means that the need to intervention in the US economy is on the whole much lower. That occasionally doesn't stop them from intervening anyway, but it, it's not necessary in the same way. Yes. If you go to a very small economy, then you may not have a place that is doing well inside the economy. And that means that there is no way to learn from and not freeing up. You have no ability to deploy the assets that are freed up from those that are badly into new good things because there is no knowledge of what works. And that means if you leave it to its own um, devices, it, the whole economy may cannot tip over and do very badly in a way that is very difficult to rectify. So if I express it in more traditional economic terms, the the smaller the economy, the more market failure becomes a feature of the economy Mm. as a whole and therefore require a much more sophisticated intervention. Now, interventions on the whole are not 
aimed at picking winners, but they are about deselecting losers, so the economy as okay. a whole does not suffer. So, and it's it's very clear that that in an international perspective, South Australia is a small economy. Sure. So, if you look at the state as it as an entity in its own right, it does require intervention to make things happen. Now, the the second challenge is that the interventions um, are expensive. Uh, by definition, mm. and they also um, require a lot of capabilities, they require a lot of workforce, they require a number of things, which are a limited supply in most smaller economies. By definition, they are small. Um, and that means that you can't do everything. That means you have to prioritize. Mm. So uh, you go with an interventionist policy, which is necessary for the smaller uh, economies, then you will have to prioritize. You can't do everything. Mm. Um, and you can see that now there is a big investment going into hydrogen. Uh, so one has made a bet of hydrogen here. And that will absorb, I presume, a pretty substantial chunk of what is available outside the healthcare budget yes. for the government here. And that means it's very little left for doing other things. Mm. Um, mm. And so that is a prioritization of the bet. And the key thing to make that work is that you know what you're going to use the hydrogen for and that you have all the available workforce strategies for ensuring you can you know, populate this with the things you need. You know what the market is, you know what the companies are involved, and you know how to ensure the local economic spillover effect from supply chain activities and capability building. Because otherwise, you're just going to transfer most of the money you spend to foreign suppliers who will benefit their countries, yes. good, good for them, but not necessarily building up an industrial capability here. And then during the operations, you're still dependent on procuring services and equipment from overseas to get this working. And if you are not value adding to that hydrogen in a way that ensures that you retain high levels of let's call it profit or cash in the economy, rather than ending up selling a commodity at very low margins, um, you will have a challenge. You really need to ensure you know what you're going to do with this product that you're now investing heavily to generate. What I've taken from that is that that traditional mode of operation of digging things up, shipping them off, has probably got us into this point where we've suffered in terms of an economic complexity. So if you look at where we rank, I think it's in the 90s now out of 133 countries, uh, sitting behind Uganda and just above Pakistan. So is that digging things up, shipping them off and not utilising them for value creation in our own backyard? One of the reasons why we've gotten to that poor economic well, complexity if, ranking. If you think about it, you have political decisions and boundary conditions or interventions have decided to dismantle most of your sophisticated industry. Now, the, the challenge with that is that as new knowledge appears, you have fewer companies around who are able to absorb that knowledge and put it to use. Mm. And that means that the ability to generate value per capita, in other words, per participant in the economy um, of a new thing that appears is going to be much lower in a, a country like uh, Australia or South Australia than it's going to be in a country that has higher ability to absorb this and a bigger industrial capacity like a Germany or a France or a Switzerland or mm. a Sweden or a UK or a US or a Canada, right? Yeah. So there is there is a decision, a set of decisions that are leading you down this, this path. And, and at the end of the day, it means that, that if you look at the, the mining industry, which is full of great companies that are Australian, they do great businesses. So they dig things up and they sell it out and they make a decent money out of that. But look at where the equipment that they use come from. So look at what share of their capital spending is actually going to Australian, the Australian economy to build up activity here and as opposed to how much they go to other places. Yeah, I'm assuming and it's very low. It is very yeah. low. <laughs> uh, so, so if you look at that, even though you have a, a mining equipment technology services industry and you're trying to build it, it still makes up a very small proportion of, of these activities. And, and whereas you, you see who, who makes the money out of, well, there are, 
Swedish companies like Epiroc, Volvo, Scania, mm-hmm. you name them, Atlas Copco, whatever. You have Finnish companies, you know, Autotech, all these things, they get a lot of money. You have Caterpillar, you have all of these companies that, that are the beneficiaries of the ongoing investments and operations of the mining companies, none of which are driving basically ec- economic activity and capability building in the Australian economy. Of Taken some points from your slide about the potential comparative and competitive advantages in South Australia. And these are things that are known to me having lived here all my life. But we've obviously got very good wind and solar resources. We've got, I think, around 11% here you've stated of Australia's iron ore resources and magnetite iron ore. Uh, Around 69% of Australia's copper and similar proportion of graphite. We have a tradition of industrial activities, an abundance of land suitable for things like carbon capture and solar applications, co-location of our critical minerals, things like iron, copper and gold, with renewable hotspots for wind and solar, um, mostly in the upper Spencer Gulf. So these are all really nice converging factors. Could you talk to us about how a state like South Australia might leverage them for competitive advantage? So, firstly, I think you have to separate comparative and competitive advantage. A, a, a comparative advantage is something that is, in a sense, God-given. You know, you got it and it's there. You can't neither do anything about getting it nor removing it. So, living in a place where the wind blows a lot is, yep. a, is a potentially a comparative advantage. Living in a place where the sun is out a lot is a comparative advantage. A competitive advantage is what you create uh, based on deploying certain resources with a set of characteristics. So a, a competitive advantage can be having a an ability to um, uh, cheaper produce something than somebody else. You know that's that's you have created that ability based on a number of things. So so the first thing is to separate these two. So yep. a number of the things that you mentioned, not all of them, a number of the things are comparative advantage: you know, access to wind, access to solar, having a lot of land, and so on. A competitive advantage is things like having an industrial tradition. You know, that is something you have created once upon a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, you have retained some of it, although, you know, not as much as you used to have in that. All of these things are there. So the question becomes, how can you deploy them to generate the maximum value, both in terms of environmental positive impact, as well as in economic positive impact for the yes. state? And that is the key question that will require both clear policy directions um, and the tools to make that happen, uh, as well as the ability and desire for the economic agents, companies and so on, to go down that route because they see there is a benefit in it somewhere down the line. Okay, yeah. You alluded to workforce as well and deploying of capability and skill. There was one quote you mentioned last night in the talk that stuck with me. Uh, Can we afford to let the next generation educate themselves in what they want versus what we need them to do? It's a, I don't have an answer to that, but it, I think it's a question that needs to be discussed. So if you have a situation where you have a great opportunity to develop an industrial structure with huge amount of value creation for everybody. So, you know, everybody in the state could be, take a number from the air, $10,000 better off per year in mm-hmm. their wallet. But it would require to have a number of people with engineering degrees and a number of people with this. While simultaneously, uh, the education direction that is chosen by individuals, because they have free choice, is to educate themselves to accountants and lawyers. And therefore, by giving them this free choice, which is a great thing to Mm -hmm. have, you are abstaining from $10,000 in your pocket for everybody. Yes. Now, and that is not a problem when you have a surplus of workforce and when you have a surplus of capability in that workforce and when everybody is developed by, you know, lifelong learning in companies and you have sufficiently in the free choice, the people, sufficient number of them go to the areas you can draw on them. Then this is never going to be a problem. But if you have a situation where you don't have a workforce, and, you know, the people choose not to go down in the ability that actually creates the capacity for the state to benefit from these opportunities. 
then you may at least discuss the question. Mm. Is this uh, what we want or is it not what we want? And I'm not saying you should go down one way or the other, but I mm. think it's an interesting debate to have. Yeah. So given there'll be a lot of workforce, technology, infrastructure and other constraints as part of a transition, how feasible is a green transformation actually? You mentioned a statistic the other night, something like we'll have, I think, 60% higher greenhouse gas emissions if we drop everything and go fully renewable. Is that accurate? So, yes. So this is based on a study made in Sweden where they looked at extending the present electrical system so that it could generate twice the electricity versus replacing uh, all the components that needed to replace in the existing electrical system uh, with totally renewable energy to get to the same objective. And what they found that when they looked at that was that over the total life cycle of the needed activities, and that's a long life cycle, mm-hmm. uh, you, uh, you end up with the renewable alternative having a 60% higher greenhouse gas emission per gigawatt hour than the extending the traditional one. And the traditional one, of course, includes nuclear, for example. Yeah. So, and one, the challenge around this is twofold. One is the, uh, life, the length of operations. So a hydroelectric plant and a nuclear plant lasts substantially longer than a photovoltaic solar cell plant or a wind mill, you know, with a propeller on it. So, so that means firstly, you have much, you have to replace these several times mm. during the same life cycle. So that's the first activity. The second is that the the type of materials you use. I mean, a, a nuclear reactor is, you know, it's basically a big chunk of concrete. You have a bit of aluminium, you have a bit of steel, you have a bit of zinc, and so on. So you have a few things like that. None of them is very complicated. None of them really a deficit risk. And of course, uranium is a resource that nobody else wants for anything, but maybe the depleted form in the armed forces. But apart from that, generally, yeah. you know. <laughs> Whereas if you look at these renewable uh, sources, they require all kinds of rare earth materials. Those materials take a lot of energy to to develop. So you go through the cycle. They use an enormous amount of energy to mine them, to beneficiaries throughout the system and so on in the area. And finally, in many of the situations, we cannot recycle them because obviously think about building an offshore wind farm, you know, so it lasts for, you know, doesn't matter what number you put on it, 15, 20, 25 years. Mm. Then you have to take it down. You have to bring it in, you have to break it up, you have to recycle it, and then you have to try to get the new thing in. If you look at all that thing, it's not surprising that the greenhouse gas emissions throughout that long period, where, you know, nuclear power station operate easily 60 years, so hydroelectric will be yes. the same. And if you, if you look at that, you can, you can understand that we're taking into account the energy challenges, the lack of resourcing activities that you need, it is not surprising that greenhouse gas emissions are higher mm. in that alternative than the former one. And this this is the basis for some of the really difficult discussions that you need to have. And it's also the basis for the changed narrative around nuclear in the European Union, with the exception of Germany, where you know basically all countries are now moving towards building more nuclear power station because it is impossible to reach the amount of electricity you need in this new green world without going down the nuclear way. You don't have enough space for the, the renewable in some countries. You just the, the surface areas are enormous. Um, you don't have enough raw material in the world to yes. support some of these things. It just won't ever be it, enough, will it? It won't ever be enough. And we do not have the technology to recycle these things. So mm-hmm. that is what drives the, the narrative of moving to, to green. And you can see the consequence if you don't do it. So Germany have just closed down the two most modern reactors in the world for ideological reasons. As a consequence of that, they are now buying more nuclear power from the neighboring countries with nuclear, mm-hmm. and they are burning an additional 11,000 tons of brown coal every day. Okay. So now Germany is the limiting factor for reaching the Paris Agreement in Europe. Wow. Right? So, And that is an ideological decision. And as a consequence of that, there are now serious challenges on access to electricity in Germany, which means in the latest study, 30% of German industry is now contemplating locating its production activities outside of Germany because they are afraid they're not going to be able to keep operating mm. in Germany because of lack of electricity. Unbelievable. So these are the type of consequences that are frequently not discussed when you end up in an either an emotional discussion 
or an ideological discussion not taking into account the factual situation that you are facing. Mm. I've got a color-coded map in front of me from Our World in Data, which shows the energy sources for electricity for all the nations in Europe. The ones in red are the nations moving to nuclear. Yep. Russia has a large supply of natural resources, uh, also Spain and Portugal. And as you mentioned there, Germany, Poland uh, with coal. So are we well, likely that, to... That, is, that map's a bit out of date. Poland okay. is moving towards nuclear. Yes, okay. And Sweden is again up... I mean, there's already in nuclear, but it's now changing all the regulation is going to build nuclear uh, dramatically. Finland is moving to nuclear. So you see this whole movement towards both big reactors and small, depending on application. And all the SMRs, there's one SMR being built in Canada, uh, I think is a G Hitachi one. Mm-hmm. And um, I think its rated power is something in the vicinity of 400 megawatts. And if you if that is being developed on the time, on budget, and with the rated output confirmed, then it's very clear that a number of other entities, both companies and municipalities, so councils in, in different places in Europe, are looking at procuring these, yeah. these reactors. And given you start to pull together the, some of the submarine-type contracts and the know-how that's going to be required around that, our vast country and space resources and the ability to perhaps think about dealing with nuclear waste, and it starts to become a feasible area to sort of move towards for Australia. Well, in the, in the Royal Commission, the Nuclear Royal Commission, they looked at that. What came out as a conclusion in very simplistic terms was that there is a hu- there was a huge business opportunity where companies with a challenge were willing to pay an enormous amount of money to have their nuclear waste being taken to Australia. And it's not because of anything else more than the space constraint a number of these smaller countries are facing where they don't have either their geological ability nor the technology nor the physical space to mm. to place this material whereas Australia has and the other thing that is frequently forgotten is that people say we hate nuclear waste well good luck on you there is there is nuclear waste in cupboards all over this Adelaide for mm. example yep. because it's all residue from you name it from uh, environmental things from hospitals and so on so it's not that you're nuclear free you have nuclear waste everywhere and the problem is you don't quite know what you're going to do with it mm. because you are not willing to face up to this activity and also if you are afraid of proliferation the one thing you should do because you are a big you produce 28% i think to remember of the world's uranium and and um, and of course, what you could do is you could you could choose, well, we may not build nuclear, but we're going to help others. So you can help other countries build nuclear. You can ensure that you provide the uranium to them, but you lease it to them so that you get it back when they are finished with it. And you can then use uh, technologies already in use, for example, in Finland and Sweden to store it. And that material will become a fuel for future generation nuclear reactors. So it will be a valuable resource and it supports anti-proliferation and it develops your capability to manage the nuclear side, which you will if you at some point get this nuclear submarine with its associated <laughs> challenges. Once and if we eventually stick it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so if we, South Australia, Australia, take and trailblaze this green path, what skills and vocations will be in highest demand? Well, <laughs> there is a number of basic skills. So let me start in this area. What are the type of education levels that are going to be most in demand moving into this new world. Well, it's going to be the VET level education. No, that is where, where the largest demands are for these new industries. So, and, and it's VET about anything from solar panel operators to solar panel, you know, dismantlers to wind generating engineers. You name it. It's a whole host of jobs in that whole system. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have at least 10 years ahead of you where you're going to try to get a grip on your electricity distribution network, you know, so that will be a, a whole host of, I mean, electricians in the broadest term will be enormously in demand because it's all going electric. So there is, there is an enormous opportunity for everybody who has an interest in going to a practical job in the vet type education level to get those education levels and then be in demand Mm. for a long time. Um, Then in the uh, higher education levels, there will be a number of specific jobs that will require. Um, You know, so one of them is, I mean, we sit in the Institute of Machine Learning. 
this whole uh, digital thing which is happening in parallel and is a very important component of the going green uh, transition. We will need a lot of people who understand all the digital technologies in such a way they can put them to use to drive productivity in firms. And, and uh, for everybody, I would basically say when you look at these digital technologies, there are two choices you can make. You can either learn how to put them to use. It's a tool. It's like a hammer. So either you learn how to put them to use. And if you do learn that, they will enhance your productivity and therefore secure your long-term employment opportunities. Or if you don't learn that, they will replace you. So they will do what you do in most situations. And and what we see is that whereas the traditional discussions about digital technology like machine learning and so on has very much been about the routine type jobs. What we now see is with generative AI, there's a strong correlation between the probability or possibility of being replaced with the level of education and creativity in your job. In other words, the more creative the job is, the more higher educated you are, mm. um, the more likely that you're going to be replaced. Mm. So it's, it's a completely <laughs> different conversation in that. And that is because um, there is a paradox. And it basically says that the things like fine motor coordination, you know, the skill that you have as a as a really experienced engineer, maintenance engineer that, that know how to coordinate with your hands and so on, that skill is incredibly difficult to replace with technology. Whereas the intellectual skill is actually turns out to be relatively easy yeah, to replace. To replace, right, yeah. okay. So, so therefore, again, it is an argument mm. for the jobs that require some form of physical capability in terms of coordination and motor skills. And that you find a lot in the vet sector and some in the engineering and equivalent sectors. Mm. They are going to be reasonably safe from the, uh, from, from these things, specifically then if it is in a non-repetitive way then yes. they will be completely secure. Okay. Now, that's really good insight. And um, I wondered as well about whether it was going to be strictly physical sciences, material sciences that we're going to... But it's no, not- we, need all of, we need all of that. I mean, mm. we need to create new materials. We need a lot of chemists. Mm. You know, the world is out of chemists. We need lots of chemists. Specifically, it means you're going to biological raw materials that kind of force biomass that's going to form the basis for very sophisticated chemicals. Mm. And we need new new pathways to create those chemicals and produce it at scale at low cost. That requires a lot of chemists. Uh, material, we need new material, we need material science, we need the ability to use this new digital tool to create theoretically new materials with a set of characteristics and then the ability to in reality produce them at scale. So there is a whole host of the of jobs that are linked to the scientific domains that needs to be developed in order for us to secure this green transition. And their opportunity will be, your imagination will be what limits you in yeah. terms of seeing this opportunity. Yeah. And quantum? Is that too nascent so, no, and quantum premature? Is all the, I mean, we, we still, I mean, the Nobel Prize today, uh, this year went to this type of quantum dots, right? And you already have them in your TV screens. Mm. So what we need is, like always, you need curiosity-driven research done by fantastic researchers who have the ability to pursue directions to achieve outcomes that were not predicted and we didn't know what they were going to be, right? None of them knew, but it's worth doing. And these people who are at that level of performance, they will need to be given the freedom to go and do that. Uh, Then you have the people whose task it will be to take the knowledge we have and convert that to some form of physical product, service, Mm -hmm. reality, insight, and or uh, using more or less existing knowledge to which you add marginally to solve a practical problem. So in terms of some form of applied research. So you need those. And those are different tasks for different people. Australia does the former really well and we perform poorly at the translation end. So are things like the UK Catapult and USA's SBIR, they're the sorts of uh, levers, uh, mechanisms that could be used to help bridge that gap between yes you they are they are different things so the uk catapult center is basically a toolbox you actually have a, a version a small version of it down in tonsley mm. here um it's a small toolbox from a 
policy perspective, but it's very important because its task inherently is to increase the absorptive capacity of as small and medium-sized enterprises around new technologies so they can understand how should I redesign my plant to use robotics? How should I change my process to use machine learning? How do I move from subtractive to additive manufacturing? There's a couple of practicalities like that. It's a transfer of know-how to enhance the productivity and the absorptive capacity of small and medium-sized enterprises, highly supported by the big companies who are the beneficiaries of having smarter and better performing subcontractors. Yes. So that is one song. The SBIR is basically a it's a procurement mechanism. And I think this is this is important. So mm. as a government policy portfolio, what in, in in the industrial domain, what type of tools do you have? Well, you can you can give out money directly indirectly. You can do it by grant, direct grants, R and D tax credit, and so on. Um, and and the challenge with that is that you pay the factor for an activity, mm-hmm. so you don't pay for an outcome. You, your R and D tax credit is not a function of what you achieved with your R and D. It's just a function of how much you do, yep. in a sense. And likewise with a grant, you get a grant for executing an activity. You don't get a grant for achieving an outcome. So so these are activity driven and therefore by definition they will have low low effectiveness for mm. the money. <clears throat> not everything will work and not everything will be very productively done. The other side of your portfolio is is so this is dealing with the supply side. The other side of the portfolio deals with the demand side, and that is procurement. And procurement inherently is about paying for outcomes. If you don't deliver, you get no money. Yep. Uh, so it actually drives companies to do things. So the ability to buy things that are a level above in performance, what presently exists on the market, is a really good way of developing your industrial capability. Okay. The problem is that most procurement entities are not able to do that very well. They are captured by bureaucratic rules. They are afraid of having a failure because they will appear. You know, you can't succeed with everything. And and so there is a number of things like that. There's also regulation about not being allowed to buy anything that isn't lowest cost. So you you have created an environment in which that tool is very difficult for Mm, using. To actually execute, yeah. Yeah. Whereas in some other countries, it's very well. SBIR is an example of what's actually probably considered the most successful procurement-based intervention or not, mm. not not to say the most successful uh, industry policy tool in the world. It's been operating for say 45 years or so and it's been incredibly successful. And basically you buy things that don't exist and as a consequence you drive up industrial capability yeah. and you create companies and you create a lot of them, right? So it's, it's very good. Uh, the other tools you have on that side is regulation where you can actually force companies to do things. And uh, the problem with that is of course that when you do that, the cost of the company goes up. So you do not, you do not impose regulations in a world where nobody else will ever impose that regulation because then you have reduced your competitiveness to your companies. So what you should do is to look at the domains where the rest of the world is highly likely to put in this regulation and try to be first with this regulation. Right. Because then you are rapidly increasing the cost of your companies and they will fight madly to then improve their performance to reduce that cost disadvantage. And when the rest of the world put in their regulations and their companies have this cost increase, then your companies are already better and will then take market share very quickly, which is always difficult to take back from the other ones when they come down to that level. Because they're primed? Yes. So it's so you do that. And then you have things like agglomeration economics and yeah. clusters and things like okay. that. Okay. Yeah. So I want to wrap up very shortly. I just wanted to ask you to just cast your mind into the future and to speculate a little bit on what South Australia, what Adelaide could look like in 20 years' time. Where's the low-hanging fruit to get us there and how might it kind of eventuate? Um, the good thing about talking about the future is you know you're going to be wrong. And when the 20 horizon, I'm not going to be here to answer for my errors. So that's a pretty low-risk proposition. Um, I would say that I can see three scenarios. I can see a scenario where effectively very little change, in which case you are on a journey of slow decline. Uh, you will have um, a population that is not more educated than today. You will have less companies. You will have uh, a more retirement-oriented activities. Uh, there will be low value adding and low spillover services like tourism and um, stuff like that. Uh, and it will be a, 
a slowly declining, comfortable city to live in. Right. So that's that's scenario one. Uh, and that is basically if you let things go on their own devices, mm. that I think is where you will end up. Yeah. No. no one wants that. I don't want that. No. But that is what will happen if you just let the market mm. rule and don't intervene. And by the way, the market will always find a solution to any problem. The challenge is that in most of the cases, you will not like it, mm. right? So yeah. the, the second scenario is that you actually decide forcefully to do something. And that means that you enable to create a vision that is stable over more than one electoral period. Yes. And you put in place policies and tools that are not intervened with if there is a change in government. Uh, and that the general population share this vision to the extent that they are willing to go through some effort to participate in generating it going through education, doing stuff. Companies are committing to lifelong education of employees rather than getting rid of them and trying to find somebody out there that is educated, which doesn't exist. You know, there is a, there's a number of things that can happen. A government puts in investments, government puts in policies, and it's, it's a bipartisan support of the objective and how you're going to get there. Then you can actually be in a substantially better position tomorrow than you are today. And you can be the beneficiary of the value adding that comes to your endowment resources, your minerals, mm. your sun, your wind, all those things. And, and, and you really have a much higher uh, disposable income per capita in this state compared to what you might have if you do not do that. And therefore, everybody will be better off. Yes. And the opportunity will also attract younger people who want to be part of this journey where the opportunities here are greater than they may be in other places. Um, then, of course, you have the, um, the very negative scenario, which I think is low risk, but is always worth looking at. And that is that you have an exodus of industrial activities from the state. And because companies go elsewhere, because the market is bigger elsewhere, the capabilities mm. available are elsewhere are great, and the uh, you know the lead customers and the policy yes. environment is better, uh, and that means they leave the state behind and move to either bigger states or they go to California, and, and they leave behind things. And entrepreneurs decide it's not worth starting here because it isn't the market that I, that can sustain me. So I immediately go somewhere else. And that means that you have a, a rapid decline where you move to first scenario much faster than if you have things as usual. Um, so out of these two scenarios, the first and the last are negative. The last one will be fast negative. The first one will be slow. And the second one is the one that can really turn it yeah. positive. But left to its own devices, the second one will not happen. It requires clear intervention yeah. and clear participations of the citizens in making this happen. Perfect. I'm picking number two. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's been really riveting and insightful to talk to you. I really appreciate you spending time and making time to, to chat and be a guest on the podcast. I hope that the listeners gain insights into not only the local sector, but really just to have a big picture vision of the future for the state. So I want to thank you again for your time and uh, pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to It's Not All Academic on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to spread the word. Together, let's open our eyes to the incredible world of applied innovation.